Well, we uh, this morning are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in this fall and winter in the Gospel of John. We've loved uh, studying together. I've loved studying the way that John tells this rich and beautiful story, this collection of stories, the things that Jesus taught, the signs that Jesus performed, all aimed together to paint a picture of who Jesus is. And John tells us that his purpose in writing is so that seeing all of these stories of Jesus' life, that we would see him and believe in him, and in believing, find life, real deep and lasting life in his name. And so this morning, we are in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 9. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is from John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, or a man blind from birth. As his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as we talk about uh, a lot at Advent, you know, if we say that we're looking for the coming light of Jesus, well, that infers that there's something about this world that is marked more by darkness uh, than it is by light. As we look at him to come as king to set things right, it infers that everything in this world is not yet right. Right, that as we journey through this world together, uh, that our life is often marked, uh, yes, with blessing, but also with a certain amount of suffering and pain. We live in a, mar- a world that bears the marks of evil. And when we look around us and we go through this world, oftentimes even people of faith have more questions than we have answers. When we look out and see suffering, when we experience suffering, you know, the, the book of Job is the scripture's standing monument uh, to the fact that oftentimes it's foolish to try to offer too many explanations for why we suffer, to look for direct causation between uh, the issues of our lives and the suffering that we go through. And yet we see in this story that common human question on the lips of Jesus' disciples when they encounter a man suffering. Why? 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 Is this man suffering? Why, when so many babies are born with sight every year, was this man born blind? 
why? You know, it's common for us to ask why uh, when confronted with human suffering. There was a, perhaps the most wide-scale human suffering that we've experienced, anyone in this room in our lifetime, was on December 26, 2004, if you remember that uh, difficult day. It was the day of the earthquake and tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Remember the day right after Christmas, there was an earthquake, uh, the, the bottom of the sea, that led to tsunamis that affected uh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, India, Thailand. Uh, a quarter of a million people roughly died. 250 million people, a third, or, uh, a third of them, I'm sorry, 250,000 people, a third of them children. And so in a situation like that, right, the whole world looks and all together asks, why? Why? Why does something like that happen in our world? Well, there was an article uh, shortly after that in the LA Times that was titled, Deadly Tsunami Resurrects the Old Question of Why. And this author of the article went and asked uh, leaders of different faith traditions that were represented in the communities that were affected uh, by the tsunamis, why? Why do you believe that this happened? Sri Lanka, one of the countries affected, is, is majority uh, Buddhist. And a Buddhist leader uh, explained the Buddhist doctrine of karmic law. He says, In Sri Lanka and Thailand, both majority Buddhist countries hit by the tsunami, people tend to believe that those who perished were paying the price of accumulated demerits in this life or past ones, while the survivors were reaping rewards. So the tsunami comes, and those who had done bad in this life die, those who are good enough survived. The author notes that this man and his family survived, so he must have passed the test. Hindu religion, which is the majority religion in India which was affected, similarly has a doctrine of karma, but they believe in gods, or God, the god or gods. And so they believe that it's not just the law of the universe, but God visiting judgment on people in the midst of this. A Hindu religious leader says this, we all believe that too many people were doing too many bad things. People have not lived up to what they are supposed to do, not helping people, not treating their parents well, not caring for the poor, and going to war for unethical reasons. And so the tsunami was the judgment of the gods for this. Indonesia, majority Muslim nation, a Muslim imam in the country, saw it as a test from Allah for his people to decide what they would do with it. And then a New Age Wiccan high priestess said this, that the tsunami was simply Mother Nature stretching her back, that these things happen. And so the question comes to people of the Christian faith, where do we say that God is in the midst of suffering? How can what we believe about God, a good and just and righteous and loving God, where is he in the midst of such human suffering? You know, this isn't uh, an academic question. Uh, to bring it home a little closer, where is Jesus in our suffering? Right? Where is Jesus when we hurt, when our neighbors hurt? You know, I don't know uh, the story of every person in this room, but I know a lot of you. Uh, and I know a lot of your stories. And I know that every one of you on some level is suffering. Right? You can't, nobody gets through this life without it. Some of you suffer uh, temptation and addiction. Some of you have suffered through seasons of, of unemployment or financial hardship. Others of you suffer through relational tension, difficult marriages, loneliness. 
Where is Jesus? Where is a good and loving Jesus in the midst of our suffering? Well, that's the story. Uh, That's what we're going to seek to see in looking at the way that Jesus interacts uh, with this particular instance of human suffering in the man born blind. Chapter 9, our reading starts with, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And it's easy to skip over that simply as setting, but it's crucial when we wonder where is Jesus in our suffering. It's crucial that we realize, above all, that Jesus sees you. Jesus sees me. Jesus sees us. And he sees us with the eyes of compassion. He sees us with the eyes of love. You know, uh, what we didn't read, we looked at it last week uh, in chapter 8, was the setting that this comes in. Look at the very end of chapter 8. It ends, remember, chapter 8 is this long dispute, this long debate that Jesus has with religious leaders. And it doesn't go well, and it ends even worse. Right? So verse 59, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Right, so the end of this story ends with Jesus at such conflict with the religious leaders of Israel that they pick up stones to to throw at him, and he hides and he runs. He slips out into the crowd. And immediately, it says, as he was passing by, he saw a man born blind. Right, so Jesus is not out on a leisurely stroll. Jesus isn't out just looking for his good deed to do for the day. Jesus is fleeing an angry mob trying to kill him. Jesus is is running for his life in the midst of this crowd. And there, with all of that on him, with the knowledge that people are out, out to kill him, he comes across this man, and he sees him, and he stops, and he looks at him, and he knows him. Right? Jesus is not preoccupied with bigger and better things. Jesus is not preoccupied with his own uh, life, his own agenda, his own self-preservation, but Jesus sees the man. This is a a character trait of Jesus that we've seen over and over in in, in the Gospel of John, right? He saw the man by the pool, the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and he singled him out, right? He saw the Samaritan woman by the well there in the heat of the day, isolated in her shame, He saw her, and he sought her out, and he spoke with her. Over and over, John is showing us that Jesus is the incarnation of the God who sees us. There's that beautiful and tragic story in Genesis where Hagar and her son are abandoned and sent out into the wilderness. And as they go out and sit under a tree, fully expecting to die, God appears to her. And she says of Yahweh, you are the God who sees me. You're the God who sees me and has compassion on me. When the world has abandoned me, when I feel alone and isolated and hopeless, you are the God who sees. And so here's Jesus, the God who sees in the flesh. In the midst of this stressful situation, he sees this man born blind. And his compassion overwhelms, it overwhelms his push towards self-preservation and survival. If you're familiar with the story of the gospel, this is a theme. That in Jesus, his compassion for the suffering always overwhelms his, his, his desire for his own interests. His desire for self-preservation and protection. 
right, in a way that it never does for us, right? Each one of us is far more concerned with avoiding our own suffering than we are moved by the suffering of others. But in Jesus, he was so taken with compassion for our suffering that he was willing to hold his own life loosely, going even to the point of his own suffering and death on the cross, right, as he enters into Jerusalem uh, before his crucifixion. He weeps over the city. He weeps over our suffering. He weeps over our sin. And it ultimately leads him to the cross. That same dynamic that leads Jesus to this man, that leads him in compassion to him, is the same thing that leads Jesus to the cross. It's the same thing that leads Jesus to each one of us, that he sees us and he has compassion on us. If you're suffering today, if you're struggling today, if you're wondering where Jesus is in the evil of this world, you are not alone. He sees you. He's with you. You are not unnoticed to him, though it often feels like we suffer alone and that no one in this world could possibly understand our particular brand of suffering. Jesus knows you, he sees you, and he looks on you in compassion. Well, his disciples, on the other hand, are not quite as compassionate. His disciples, when they look at the same man, the same man blind from birth, they see in him not uh, a man deserving their compassion and their love, but rather an occasion for theological or philosophical debate. They look at him and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind, right? So they, they look at him and they ask a question that's natural enough, right? If so many people are born uh, seeing and we know God is just and this man's born blind, certainly somebody sinned, right? Certainly somebody is to blame for this man's sin. So who was it? Was it his parents that sinned? Was he uh, born in the midst of an illicit affair? Was he born to two sinful people? Is that why he was born blind as a judgment on their sin? Or did he somehow sin himself? Did he somehow sin in the womb that led to him uh, being born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, uh, his question, which uh, interestingly enough, Jesus leaves unanswered, right? Jesus uh, answers this kind of question most fully in Luke 13, where he's asked uh, a similar question. And he says, basically, uh, speaking of uh, some men from Galilee who were, who were killed and their, and their blood was mingled with the temple sacrifice under one of Israel's oppressors, he says, basically, do you think that their sin was somehow worse than everybody else's sin? Right, so his answer is, well, yes, both this man and his parents sinned, but their sin wasn't worse than anybody else's sin, right? They sinned in that they're human and in that everybody sins, but you see perfectly well. Do you think that you're without sin? Do you think that you're, the fact that you, you're born with sight is somehow means that you're good? So he says, no, everybody's, everybody's sinful, that we can't look for one-to-one causation between human sin and human suffering, that it just doesn't work that way. But for the disciples, uh, they had a way of looking at the world that basically uh, is similar to what we talked about at the beginning, the, the, the Buddhist or the Hindu view of karma, right? That the bad that you put into the world comes back on you in some way. 
right, that the sin that you commit comes back on you in judgment. It's a, it's a worldview that gives uh, people that hold it some measure of control over our lives, doesn't it? Right, in the face of suffering, in the face of a suffering that we can't control, that we can't predict, if I say that when I suffer, it's because of something I did, as terrifying as that is, it gives me some small measure of control over my life. Right, if I, if I make amends for the bad that I did, if I try harder not to do the same bad things in the future, that life can go better for me. Right, that if I work hard enough and get good enough, that things can go better. It's a view of the world that's, that's a karmic view, that every bad thing we do that we put out there comes back on us, and the good things that we do come back to us. You know, I had a, I had a friend uh, in college, a guy, uh, a, a, he was from Atlanta, but he was of Indian descent, and we played football together. And he grew up in a Hindu family. He grew up um, practicing the, the religion of Hinduism. And one day, our sophomore year, uh, my friend was going through a very difficult time. He was making some of the same stupid mistakes that a lot of us make in college. He was, he was feeling isolated and alone and depressed. He was searching spiritually. And one night, he realized what was going on in his life was that he was exhausted. He was worn out and he was anxious because he did believe that every bad thing that he did was coming back to him. That this hamster wheel that he was running on, believing that every effort that he put out was just coming back on him, that he was stuck in this karmic world where he was only, only left to suffer for his bad behavior, he realized that it was empty. And he turned to Jesus. He was captivated by the, by the Christian notion of grace. The idea that the bad that we put into the world doesn't, instead of coming back on us again and again in an endless wheel, that instead the bad that we put into the world came back on Jesus, that he was willing to take all of the evil, all of the sin, all of the suffering, all of the foolishness and selfishness, and instead of visiting it back on us again and again, that he took it all on himself on the cross. Therefore, my friend didn't have to live on the wheel. He didn't have to live constantly waiting for his mistakes to come back on him. That he could have a life lived by grace. It captivated his heart, and he handed his life over to grace, over to Christ. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And yet I'm, you know, I'm convicted of the fact that it's not just people who grew up Hindu. Uh, that, are, that are trapped in this place of believing that the bad we do comes back on us and the good we do comes back on us. Right? I think there's many, many Christians who live the same way, who having once been persuaded of grace, live our lives as though we're constantly waiting for God to strike us with judgment when we sin, or on the other hand, to reward us with good things when we do good, when we believe right. Right? There's different views of this. Right? There's different ways of doing this. Some of us live within a legalistic framework where we believe that if we fight sin hard enough, if we keep sin out of our lives and out of our world, that somehow God is going to enable our lives to be blessed and to go well. There's also a way of believing uh, that's sometimes called the prosperity gospel right? that says if I do right, if I pray right, if I give to God, if I give enough, that he's going to bless me financially, I'm going to get back everything that I put in. Right? Those things, those ways of believing are not grace. 
It is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that Jesus uh, took on himself the penalty for human sin on the cross so that we don't have to continually take on to ourselves the results of our own sins. You know, Jesus, uh, when he does answer their question, he doesn't answer exactly, he doesn't parse out exactly how sin works or who sinned and how they got, uh, how this man was born blind. But look what he does say. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus situates this man's suffering in the larger context of the story that God is telling in the world and the glory that God is shining forth in redeeming a broken world. Look what he says. He says, look, it's not that this man was born, born any more sinful or less sinful. It's simply that he was born into a world of sin, right? From Genesis chapter 1 on, we, we know, or Genesis chapter 3 on, we know that though this world was created good, it was created to be a, part, to be a world without suffering or evil or death, but that because of human sin, there is suffering in the world, right? Because of, it's not that this man's parents sinned or that he sinned, but because of sin, because of Adam's sin and Eve's sin and every one of their successors, because of human sin, that tragedy happens, that there's things like blindness and earthquakes and natural disasters and cancer and illness and suffering, that all of those things do not reflect the world the way it's supposed to be, right? They don't reflect the, way, the world the way God created it to be, but they reflect the fissures of a world that's broken because of sin. And from Genesis chapter 3 on, the story of the Bible is the story of God working to put back together a broken world. The story of God working to heal a world that's been broken by sin. You know, oftentimes uh, in the West, America, Europe, when we ask the problem of evil, when we pose that problem, where is God, where is a good and just God in a world of suffering? It's usually a question of why, and it's somewhat of a philosopher's question. Right? We answer it as an abstract question. Right? How can, how can good and evil exist together? How can there be a good and just God in a broken world? But the scriptures don't approach the question that way. The scriptures don't approach, no matter how much we kind of wish they would, right? We wish that Jesus would just answer that question for us. But instead, the biblical authors don't tell the story of where is God in the midst of this broken, suffering, and evil world. The question that they seek to answer is a much more concrete and practical one. It's the question, what is God going to do about a world that's broken by sin? Right? Not philosophically and abstractly, how, does he, how do you reconcile the two in your mind? But in this world, what will God do about it? What's he going to do? What's he going to do to set it right? What's he going to do to heal and to comfort and to mend We started by talking a little bit uh, about the tsunami of 2004. One of, um, one of the, I think, the best theological books written in the last decade was it's a short, tiny little book uh, by an Orthodox theologian named David Bentley Hart called The Doors of the Sea. And he wrote it right in the aftermath of the tsunami. He wrote it because everyone around the world was wrestling with this question, where is God in the midst of something like this? And he said, it's a, it's a tiny little book, it's a great read, Heavy, but good. And this is what he writes about where the God of the Bible is in the midst of human suffering. 
He says, we Christians are not obliged and perhaps are not even allowed to look upon the devastation of that day, to look, that is, upon the entire rim of the Indian Ocean, strewn with tens of thousands of corpses, a third of them children, and to attempt to console ourselves or others with vacuous cant about the ultimate meaning and purpose residing in all that misery. Listen to this. Ours, after all, is a religion of salvation. Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death. And those forces, whether calculating malevolence or imbecile chance that shatter living souls. And we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of my God, but the face of his enemy. You understand what he says? He says that our religion is a, is a faith of salvation. It's a question not of why does God permit evil, but of God actively opposing evil everywhere it comes. Right from the moment the, the, the apple was bit in the garden, God has been working to pursue sinners, to offer forgiveness, healing, and grace, to bring peace where there's war, to bring reconciliation where there's enmity, to bring recovery where there's bondage, that from the, from, from the first pages of the Bible all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, it's the story of God putting a broken world together again. It's a story that leads God ultimately to send his son to die on the cross. Right For the Christian, the problem of evil isn't solved in the soft leather of a philosopher's chair, but on the hard wood of Calvary's cross where Jesus takes our questions onto himself, right? The, 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 the disciples question, why? Why did this happen? The, the, the question that every single one of us asks, why am I suffering? Why is my marriage suffering? Why are my children suffering? Why is my neighborhood suffering? That same question, why? Instead of answering it, Jesus takes it on himself. It's the same question that Jesus asks in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Why, Father? It's the same question that he asks on the cross. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus doesn't answer our question. He does something so much more. He takes it and he makes it his own question. He takes it with him to the cross. And because of the cross, we can know that suffering and death and evil don't have the last word in our lives. Right? That is good news. Think about that. That means that the suffering of your life does not define you, right? The thing, whether it's the suffering that you've caused yourself, right, your own sin and foolishness and addiction, it doesn't have the last word over your life, right? It doesn't mean that your life is forever labeled and filed away under who you are and what you've done, sinner, addict, adulterer. It doesn't mean you're not defined by that. It, doesn't mean, it means that you're not defined by your suffering and what others have done to you. Abandoned, betrayed, victim. You're not labeled by your diagnosis, by your illness. Right? Any, sin doesn't have the power to be the last word in our lives because Good Friday is followed by Easter Sunday. Right? The brightness of resurrection follows the cross. Jesus is working to take all of the sad and broken and miserable things of our lives 
in making them new, making them into new creations in him. And so Jesus, he sees our suffering. He enters into our suffering, making it his own. And then he situates our lives and gives our lives purpose and meaning. Look at what he says. He says that this man, it's not that he sinned, but what's happened to him is happening that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. Right, no matter where you are in life, no matter how you're suffering, your life matters because you can give glory to God in your circumstances. Your life counts not just for itself, but in whatever circumstances you're in. There's the opportunity for you to live faithfully, for you to suffer if you suffer by faith, by, to suffer in relation with God, and to give God glory as you live and as you journey with him. This man uh, is asked to see his life in the context of God's greater glory and God's greater story of redeeming the world. And then I love what Jesus does. He takes the man, he takes some dirt in his hand, and he spits in it. And then he makes a paste, he makes a mud out of the dirt and his spit, and he starts rubbing it onto the man's eyes. What on earth? This is a strange story. Everywhere else uh, in the Gospels, Jesus heals by either his word, he just speaks it, says, see, and the guy sees, or simply by his touch, and the guy sees, or he walks, or he hears. But to this guy, he spits, and he rubs dirt together, and he smears it in his eyes. If I'm the man born blind, I think I'm thinking, Jesus, I've heard about you. I've heard that you can just speak, right? Or you can just touch. So I'm, I'm grateful and all, but what's going on? Why are you doing this? Why are you rubbing my eyes with, with mud and spit? And then above, even more than that, he doesn't, the guy doesn't heal, uh, see right away. He's told to go and to wash in the pool and then he'll see. And sure enough, as he does, as he washes the mud and the spit out of his eyes, his eyes open, and he can see for the first time in his life. What is Jesus doing there? Well, commentators, it's great to, when you, when you survey and, and read all the various ways that this passage has been commented on, uh, you see that some of the greatest theologians in the church don't really know uh, why Jesus is doing what he's doing. I think the best answer is that it evokes the image of, of God in, in the garden, creating man and woman simply by forming them out of the dust of the earth. Right, God created the world by taking the, by created uh, man and woman, by creating Adam out of the dust and then breathing the breath of life into his lungs. And just as Yahweh created, the earth, created man at first through dirt, so he's recreating in his son these eyes through dirt. It's the same God. The same God that created is the God who's recreating. But this man, uh, absent a theology lesson, probably is just wondering why. Why? And I think when we suffer, when we struggle, that that's often, it's these two questions. We're asked to do it's this, the same two things that this man's asked to do, is to believe that our lives can bring glory to God and to start to actually care more for God's glory than we do for our own relief, than we do for our own comfort. And so to trust and to seek God's glory in our suffering and to trust Jesus when we don't understand what he's doing. When he doesn't bring immediate healing. 
when he doesn't bring immediate freedom, when he doesn't bring immediate relief but keeps us in the suffering for a while, when he works in mysterious ways in our lives, when he brings things into our lives that we don't quite understand, to trust that he's actually working for our healing, that he's actually working for our redemption, that he's actually bringing good and wholeness out of the brokenness of our lives. Can we believe that uh, when we suffer? You know, I had a good friend um, when, we, when I was living and pastoring in Orlando who had one of the longest and most difficult battles with cancer I've ever seen. Um, he went in and out of remission. He had uh, diseases that came on through the treatment of his cancer. And, and he was a deacon in our church, the church that I helped to pastor there. And over the course of our time there, over the course of five or six years, uh, he declined and eventually died. And I remember uh, sitting with Scott, this man who was so faithful, uh, sitting with his young family uh, as he was dying. And this guy, this guy had more friends than anyone I've ever known. He had more people praying for him than anyone I've ever seen pray. And I remember being crowded into his, his home, people from, it seemed like half the churches in the city, laying hands on Scott, and praying for his healing, praying that God would make him well. And I remember Scott, when it, came to his, when, it, when it came his time to pray, said, Jesus, whether I live or die, whether you heal me in this life or not, I know that I will be made well. Right? I know that whether or not I'm healed and get to see my children and grandchildren grow up in this life, that one day I will be made whole. Right? So certain was his faith in resurrection in the goodness of God towards him. He said, I know I'll be made whole. I want to be healed in this life. Right? I want to see my children grow. But I know that you'll heal me. And I pray that you will glorify yourself in the midst of my sickness. I pray that in the way that I, the way that I deal with my sickness, the way that I suffer will cause my nurses, will cause the community, will cause the people around me to look at my life and say, he has hope. He has hope beyond this body. He has hope beyond this life. That picture, God was glorified in Scott's life. He continues to be glorified because when I, when I suffer, and I know when half of the people that were in that room or that were at that funeral suffer, we think, man, that's what suffering looks like, suffering faithfully, submitting our pain to God's glory, trusting his work even when we don't understand it, and submitting ourselves to his hand. And so Jesus answers, he doesn't answer the question of why, he answers the question, Jesus, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the pain of this world? And then I love this last little detail. Is that in Christ, the question before us isn't just what will God do about it? The question is what will we do about it? Right? It's not just what will God do abstractly about a world of suffering. But what will he use us as his people to do in a world that's marked by evil? Look at what he says in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. You know, it would, have been, it would have been more fitting, I think what we would have expected Jesus to say here, what he said elsewhere in the Gospel of John, is I must work. Right? I must be doing the Father's work. I have to do the work that the Father has sent me here to do. I have to do the work of opposing evil. But he doesn't say I. What does he say? We. We must work. 
We must work to bring light into darkness. We must work to bring wholeness into brokenness. We must work to bring righteousness into a world marked by evil. We together must do the work of Christ being the light in a dark world. And I love that he brings this man, this man born blind, into his work of shining his light in the world. Look at what he does. He says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. That's not an accidental detail. The word sent in the gospel of John is foundational to understanding the mission of Jesus. That Jesus is the sent one. He's the one who is sent from the Father to redeem us. In, John, uh, in John's version of the Great Commission, Jesus breathes on his disciples, giving them the Spirit. And he says, as the Father sent me, so do I send you out into a broken world. So do I send you to go and be my redeeming presence. And what we see in this man is he starts telling his story. Right? There's this hilarious exchange that goes on in John 9, where the, the Pharisees go, hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy that used to sit here and beg and was born blind? And people go, oh, no, no, that's not the guy. That just looks like the guy. And so they send for his parents. And they say, is that your son? Or is that just somebody, who, did he have a twin brother that we don't know about? And his parents go, I don't know, he's old enough, he's of age, you ask him. And he says, no, I'm the guy, I promise, I'm the guy. And he says, I didn't see, this is the one thing I know, I didn't see, Jesus came, and now I see. Jesus heals us so that he can send us as his witnesses in the healing of the world. Right, just as the, this man is told to go and wash in the pool of the sent one, so we in our baptism are baptized not just into the person of Jesus, but also into his mission, also into his work, to be his light, to be his presence in the midst of a broken world. There's a great quote uh, I saw this week by Bono, the lead singer of U2. I, I assume you know who Bono is. I try to limit my Bono quotes. Um, but he says this. He says, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope that when the day is done, I've been able to tear off a little corner of the darkness. It's a beautiful quote, right? I'm, just a, I'm a singer who makes songs, and I hope at the end of my life, I've just been able to tear off a little corner of the darkness of this world. Right, now, you may, you may look at Bono and think, like, well, you're you know, you can tear off a pretty big corner, right? You're the most famous rock star. You do global AIDS initiatives and all this kind of stuff. But what a beautiful picture to be able to say at the end of your life, you know what, I was, I was a bus driver, but I hope that I was able to tear off a little bit of the darkness of this world. I was a nurse, but hopefully as I offered the healing and comfort of Christ to my patients, I was able to tear off a little corner of the, of the darkness. I was, a, I was a pastor, and I hope that by the end of my life, I was able to tear off a, a little corner of the darkness. I was a real estate developer, a plumber, uh, whatever it is that God's called you to do, to be able to look at your life, to look at your, your vocation in the world, is being seeking to tear off just a little bit of the corner of this darkness, to be able to bring just a little bit more light into our world. You know, amazing things happen in the world when Christians stop trying to explain away brokenness, right? When we, when we stop trying to ask the question, why? Why is this person poor? Do they make bad decisions? Why is this person addicted? 
right? Why does this person, why is this person sick? Right, when we stop asking the why questions and the blaming questions and start asking the questions, what's God going to do about it? And how's he going to use me to do something about it? Right, that's when the church has an incredible power to actually become the light of the light of the world in a dark world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would uh, use us in the midst of the suffering of this world, to bring just a little bit of your light that we believe will one day overwhelm the darkness entirely. Lord Jesus, um, I don't know every story in this room, but I know that we are here and we are suffering. We're feeling the effects of a broken world, whether on a large scale or a small scale. We feel it uh, in our world, in our nation, in our own lives. And so, Lord, instead of growing hardened or bitter or cynical, help us to look to you, Lord Jesus, the one who takes up all of the tears of this world into your hands, who takes up every broken thing, who takes up every evil of this world and, and reworks it to make it new and whole again. Lord Jesus, we don't always understand what you're doing or when. We don't under, always understand your timing but Lord, help us to trust you, to trust that our lives will be used in your story to tell of your glory in our world. Lord Jesus, nurture our faith. Help us to follow you uh, through the wreckage of this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.